From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio, fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio. You've probably heard the comment, often attributed to Mark Twain, that there are three kinds of lies. Lies, damned lies, and statistics. Gun control advocates are fond of trotting out questionable, often fabricated statistics in a desperate attempt to prove that guns in civilian hands are dangerous and morally wrong. But the truth is out there for anyone who is willing to look and be honest about guns and crime. That's what we're going to talk about on this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. I'm Dean Reek, Executive Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and I'm joined by economist and author of More Guns, Less Crime, Dr. John Lott. Hi, John. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me on. You released a report recently which looks at concealed carry permit holders across the United States. And one of the interesting statistics in that report is that there are now more than 21 million people with a carry license. That means more than 8% of American adults now have a license to carry. Plus, we've seen a huge number of people getting licenses just recently. In 2020, there was a big spike with 2 million people getting a license for the first time. What's behind this spike in licensing? I assume part of the increase is the same reason why we've seen an increase in gun sales over the last year. Uh, You know, people see that there's uh, been big increases in violent crime. They see that the police uh, haven't been allowed to do their job or police budgets being cut. You see that uh, prosecutors in many urban areas are refusing to prosecute even violent criminals. And Over the last year and a half, we've had, or almost two years, we've had large numbers of of criminals being released from jails and prisons in many places. uh, You've had uh, over half or even two-thirds of uh, inmates being released, uh, including many violent ones. So, you know, people put a lot of faith in police, but they see that the police aren't being allowed to do their jobs. And... uh, You know, ultimately, if the police aren't able to go and protect them, they have some responsibility to try to do it themselves. So I think it's a lot of it's the same reason that, uh, you know, you've had uh, the increase in gun sales. The additional thing there is last year, there were like 20 states uh, that uh, stopped or virtually completely stopped issuing concealed handgun permits. Uh, These were states where... Democrats were running the process usually, or essentially always. And, uh, uh, and so you had, uh, last year was a relatively low uh, number, only about 850,000 concealed handgun permits were issued. Uh, and so part of it also is making up for the low number that you had last year. What's the idea behind releasing prisoners or not, not prosecuting people and 
allowing people out on the street? Is that just part of this whole woke thing that's going on in some cities where they just don't want to put certain people in prison? Because it seems like there's a disconnect here. People talk about crime. They want to pass more gun laws, but they're not actually prosecuting the violent criminals that I think that we're all really worried about. What's going on there? Right. Well, uh, if you listen to what uh, these George Soros-type prosecutors are are claiming, they're claiming that the threat of prison uh, doesn't reduce crime. And, uh, and so you, they claim you basically have an arbitrary system that primarily throws uh, minorities in jail uh, relative to whites, and it accomplishes nothing because uh, prison doesn't deter people from committing crime. Look, I mean, to me, it's pretty obvious. Uh, you make something riskier, people do less of it. Uh, you raise the price of apples, people uh, buy fewer apples. So you make it more costly to commit crime, people commit less crime. Uh, so whether you have higher arrest rates or higher conviction rates or longer prison sentences, all those things uh, make it riskier for criminals to commit crime. Allowing victims to be able to go and defend themselves uh, also makes it riskier for criminals to go and commit crime. Uh, but they have a very different view on this. Uh, they don't believe that deterrence matters in terms of crime. And so they don't see, I mean, they explicitly say it doesn't matter. So, I mean, you have bizarre statements like from AOC saying that having more police actually leads to more crime, she claims. You know, it's it's interesting to see. Now, there's, I should mention one thing. There's also one thing that makes the increase particularly surprising. And that is in permits. And that is uh, we have 21 constitutional carry states now where you don't need to have a permit to be able to go and carry. Now, what you find is that in those states, you pretty much the number of permits pretty much stays the same. If you pass it, people who are getting permits before still do so. but you don't have the big increases in those states that you have in other states where you have to go and get a permit. Um, and so uh, that the increase, the actual increase in the number of people who are carrying uh, is much larger than that over 2 million uh, increase that we've seen uh, so far this year. There's also this Supreme Court case going on now in New York and Buckeye Firearms Association submitted an amicus brief, and it's all about the so-called proper cause to carry on an unrestricted license in New York. So obviously, we're hoping that they come back with a good ruling, assuming that they do, and they strike down this proper cause requirement in New York and other states. What effect is that going to have on licensing? Would, Would you expect licensing to go up in those states? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, um, if you compare the 43 so-called right to carry or constitutional carry states to the seven main issue states, which include New York, New Jersey, Maryland, Rhode Island, um, uh, Hawaii, California, uh, what you find is that uh, those uh, may issue states have less than 1% of the adult population with a concealed handgun permit. If you take out Massachusetts, which uh, is a bit of an anomaly, 
you have uh, only about four tenths of 1% of the adult population with a concealed handgun permit. In the other 43 states, they average about almost 11% of the adult population with concealed handgun permits. So it's radically different. What I think is going to happen, though, is uh, if you force these states to uh, to adopt so-called objective rules. So, you know, in these may issue states, you have to provide a justification uh, to some local public official, and then the public official decides whether or not you have a good reason to be able to carry. Uh, and it's been fairly arbitrary. Um, you know, uh, you can't just because you live in a very dangerous uh, part of town, that isn't considered a good reason for doing it. You have to have specific threats made against you, uh, but even that doesn't always carry the day. Uh, you may remember John Stossel, who used to work at Fox News. When he was there, he had run uh, uh, episodes dealing with environmental issues and had gotten literally dozens of death threats. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, he paid his $400. He filled out the 50 pages worth of forms that he had to fill out. And uh, he applied. Uh, and the New York Police Department there said, well, you know, while it's true you've gotten these death threats, we don't believe that the seriousness of any of these death threats rises to a sufficiently high level that it justifies uh, you being able to carry uh, a concealed handgun. Um, in, uh, in San Francisco County in California, uh, you had a situation where, you know, there's a case I saw where a woman um, uh, was being stalked by a violent offender, somebody who had a history of violence, uh, even though she had a restraining order uh, against this individual, she was not allowed to get a concealed handgun permit. The only person in San Francisco County at that time. Uh, who was given a concealed handgun permit was uh, the private attorney for the sheriff for the county. And, uh, you know, so you, you have a lot of arbitrariness there. And it also um, impacts people differently uh, by race, for example. So uh, a while ago, I got uh, the list of all the concealed carry permit holders for um uh, Los Angeles County in California. They had 341 concealed handgun permits with an adult population of about 8 million. Uh, you know, not very many permits that are given there. Uh, you know, you compare it to uh, Ohio, which has about 8.5% of adults with a concealed carry permit. Uh, you know, if you if if uh, Los Angeles County had the same rate of concealed handgun permits that Ohio had, You'd be talking about, you know, about 700,000 or so concealed handgun permits. Uh, and uh, in any case, uh, when you look at the 341 that they gave out there, it's basically to wealthy, uh, very politically connected white males. Um, you know, the irony is how much Democrats claim that they care about poor and minorities and women. And yet, you know, here they're the ones who determine whether or not somebody has, quote, a good reason uh, to be able to have a, a, a permanent concealed handgun. And the only people that they seem to think uh, have good reasons are wealthy, politically connected, 
individuals who usually make large donations to the sheriff's reelection campaign. Um, you know, what you find, though, is only 7% of the permit holders in Los Angeles County were women. Uh, only 5% were black. Uh, nationwide, in the uh, uh, right to carry states where it's your decision whether or not to get a concealed handgun permit once you've, you know, like in Ohio, you meet certain criteria, you're a certain age, you pass a criminal background check, you pay your fee, you do your training. Once you've met those criteria, it's up to you to decide whether or not you want to have a permit. Uh, in, the, in the states that we have the data for, about almost 30% of permit holders are women as compared to only 7% in Los Angeles County. Is it just that women in Los Angeles County aren't being stalked or threatened with crime as compared to women in the rest of the country? Uh, you know, nationwide, you have about eight, uh, you have about 12% of permit holders are, are black in these right to carry places. In Los Angeles County, it's 5%. So you're going to see not only an increase, but you're going to see a change in the mix of people who go and get concealed handgun permits. Uh, you're going to see more women. You're going to see more relatively more uh, minorities and blacks being able to uh, carry. But uh, what will happen is uh, they're going to try to make it as difficult in other ways, I predict, for people to go and get concealed handgun permits. And our amicus brief that we put in uh, on this case uh, before the Supreme Court, uh, I compared uh, Illinois and Indiana. Uh, Illinois is the one state that was forced to adopt a right to carry law as a result of court decisions. And uh, to go and get, well, you only end, have about 4% of the adult population in Illinois having a concealed handgun permit. By contrast, the state next door to it, Indiana, which is your neighbor, has uh, uh, has about over 21 percent of their adult population with a concealed handgun permit. Why the difference? Well, it's pretty simple, actually, and that is uh, how costly it is to get a permit in Ohio and uh, Illinois. It costs over four hundred dollars to go through the process to get a concealed carry permit in Indiana. Uh, the cost of the permit itself is zero, though you have to pay $12.95 in order to do the uh, fingerprint background check that's there. Uh, so it's a lot less costly. You have a lot more people get permits. You also see a change in the mix of people who get permits. In Illinois, it's overwhelmingly uh, uh, people who live in the suburbs, wealthy areas, uh, heavily uh, white. Uh, areas heavily male. In Indiana, uh, you see a lot more people who have, live in zip codes uh, that are, you know, uh, heavily minority and poor. Uh, you know, it's not too surprising that you see that. So from my perspective, uh, whether you reduce crime with concealed handgun permits or to the extent that you do is a function of two things. Uh, the percent of the adult population with permits, but even more importantly, who it is that gets the permits. If my research convinces me of anything, it's the people who are most likely victims of violent crime who benefit the most from being able to go and get a concealed handgun permit. So if you have permits going to people who live in very low crime 
suburbs getting concealed handgun permits. That's fine. That's nice that they're doing it. But you're not going to see the same reduction in violent crime as you're going to see if you make it so that the people who are most likely the victims of violent crime, people who live in uh, high crime uh, urban areas, heavily minority, uh, heavily black areas, uh, they're the ones who are able to go and protect themselves. So uh, they're going to put they're going to put in high fees. They're going to put in long training requirements. They're going to put into a long list of places where people aren't allowed to carry, uh, and they're going to make it as difficult as they possibly can. Uh, you know, Washington D.C. was another place, the other place where courts forced them uh, to adopt a right to carry law, and. Uh, in that case, uh, what they end up doing is uh, only about uh, four-tenths of one percent of the adult population has a concealed handgun permit. Uh, and it's just because they have all those types of restrictions. If, you know, let's just wave a magic wand here and let's assume that every state removed every barrier to carry. So, like, we have a constitutional carry in all 50 states. What percentage of the U.S. population do you think would carry? I have no idea. I mean, one of the things with permits is that you know the number of permits that are out there. If you're asking me how many people carry when they don't have to have a permit, you know, that's a guess. Uh, You know, there's been some surveys that have been done on just people carrying generally. uh, And I suppose, uh, you know, it's a few years old, and so it's probably underestimating it, but you probably had about 6% or so of the adult population carry all the time or or very frequently. I would guess that's at least a couple percentage points higher than it used to be. Uh, But, uh, you know, I can't tell you how many of those have a concealed handgun permit, how many of those were in uh, constitutional carry states. Uh, You know, it'd be possible to go and check, but, uh, you know, somebody, but you'd have to rely on a survey and there's issues about whether people are going to acknowledge to some stranger that they're carrying a concealed handgun. One of the benefits of a concealed handgun is that nobody knows whether or not you're going to be able to protect yourself. And so people might be reticent uh, to go and tell others that they're carrying. There's a lot of evidence. um, If you just look at uh, surveys on gun ownership generally, that people are reluctant. I'll just give you one example. If you look at surveys on uh, household gun ownership, uh, married women are about 10 to 15 percentage points less likely to say a gun is owned in the home than married men are. Well, is it just that married men haven't told their wives that they own a gun? Uh, I suppose that's possible, Uh, but it could also be, and I think it's more likely that married women are just more reticent to go and tell a stranger uh, whether they own a gun in the home or not than uh, than men are. And, uh, you know, they may not think it's the other person's business, or they may be uh, shy about telling somebody because they may view it as controversial in some way. And, uh, And so I just don't think you see it uh, as much. Now, maybe men could also claim that they own a gun even when they don't. Uh, but you've, the bottom line is you have lots of problems with surveys. And one of the things about concealed carry, uh, right to carry laws, is that uh, you know we have a hard number. We know the number of permits 
that have been issued uh, in different states. Uh, and so, you know, while we've been collecting this data for a number of years, uh, our ability to kind of know how many people are caring has kind of gotten more difficult over time. Uh, one thing I will say is uh, you've had five states uh, enact uh, constitutional carry laws this year. Uh, you've had places like Pennsylvania, where both the state house and the state senate uh, pass constitutional carry. Uh, uh, obviously, in Ohio, you have a bill going through the state legislature there. Um, and one of the reasons why I think there's been kind of this upsurge this year has been uh, something that I mentioned earlier, and that is uh, people around the country have seen that you know, when you had these problems, when you had disasters that were occurring in terms of increased crime, many jurisdictions uh, refused to issue permits. So you had a big need for people having permits, and yet they saw the imperfections in the system when you have to rely on somebody else, particularly when you have the very emergencies that you may be most likely to need a permit concealed handgun, you're not allowed to avail yourself. I think the uh, uh, the constitutional carry laws make two major changes in um, in what your, is your current law. Uh, the first thing is uh, it makes it so that uh, if a woman's being stalked or threatened, uh, she can quickly avail herself of an ability to go and defend herself. I don't know off the top of my head how long it takes. Uh, to get a concealed carry permit to go through the process in Ohio. Uh, in many states, you're talking about anything from 45 days in Pennsylvania to, you know, uh, 90 days in Louisiana. Uh, yeah, there's supposed know, to be, in Ohio, there's supposed to be a maximum of 45 days. And it really depends on what county you're in, what sheriff you go to, and how efficient they are. Yeah, so let's say a woman's being stalked. You know, can she really afford to wait 45 days uh, in order to be able to go and get a concealed handgun permit? And by the time she finally gets approved to be able to go and defend herself, uh, you know, the danger may already have occurred. Um, the other issue that you have is just the cost of getting a permit. Um, uh, Ohio's uh, cost of a concealed handgun permit is a little bit above uh, the national average. Uh, it basically costs uh, $67 uh, for a five-year permit. And, uh, you know, uh, that may not affect you or I from being able to go and get uh, a permit. But, you know, again, the very people that my research indicates who benefit the most from being able to go and protect themselves, poor Blacks who live in high-crime urban areas, the people who are most likely victims of violent crime, you know, that may make a difference for some of them. Um, you know, I suppose without going all the way to constitutional carry, one could always adopt the type of thing that Indiana has, which is you still require a permit, uh, but you don't have any fee. Um, you know, the other thing you could add if you to kind of fix the first problem that I mentioned is you could have like uh, a reasonableness exception. So if somebody uh, you know, if a woman thinks that uh, she can prove to, uh, you know, somebody else that she's in danger in some way, uh, then 
uh, she'd be allowed to carry while she's waiting for the permit to occur. Of course, you know, there's lots of vagueness in that and uncertainty. And, you know, some people may be concerned about, uh, you know, actually doing that. Uh, but, you know, until they're, uh, you know, until they actually get a permit. Uh, so, you know, that would not be a perfect fix that's there. But, you know, uh, anyway, so I think those are the big changes. You're going to see more people carrying. We have some data from Idaho and Kansas uh, that indicates that when they moved to constitutional carry, you had uh, a surge in the number of people who got training. So even though training was no longer mandated, you know, you're talking about law-abiding individuals who know that they have a lot at stake if they do something wrong, that it's possible for them to become criminals uh, if they uh, do something wrong. And so, you know, they want to go and get training. I think, if anything, the type of training that people get when you move to constitutional carry is actually a lot better tuned to what they actually need to to know. Um, you know, uh, a lot of states, uh, when they have uh, mandated training, kind of, you know, list out what has to be covered in uh, the training session. Uh, but when you have kind of a market-driven type thing where people say, look, I want to make sure I don't get in trouble doing this, focus on the things that I need to have here and not you know, politically correct things like spending an hour and a half on how to store my guns or something like that, uh, where, you know, in some states, it's basically just indoctrination to try to convince people uh, exaggerated risks of having a gun in the home or whatever. Uh, you know, I think, uh, I think more people get training, and that's at least a proxy for more people caring. One of the most fascinating things in this report was about how law-abiding license holders actually are. I mean, the statistics on this are are really stunning. There are, there are some numbers in there, and I'm just rounding here, but it was saying, and this comes from uh, the Police Quarterly, a study from uh, 2010. And in the general population, it said that around 3,800 crimes happen per 100,000 people. That's just ordinary people in the population. Among police, it's about 103 crimes, around 100 crimes per 100,000 officers. For concealed carry license holders, it's about seven crimes per 100,000 people. So license holders are not just a little bit more law-abiding. They are way more law-abiding than either police or the general population. How would you explain this? What, why is it that license holders according to these statistics, are so incredibly law-abiding? Well, I mean, I think you have people that have a lot to lose. Uh, I think uh, people, civilians, uh, for multiple reasons, are reticent to use their guns uh, because they know that they have a lot to lose. If you use your gun improperly, you become a felon. Uh, you know, you may lose your business or professional licenses. Uh, you're going to lose a good portion of your assets and uh you know your life is going to be really unalterably changed uh so um i think people are very careful you know, if you look at uh firearms related violations uh uh permit holders are convicted of firearms related violations at about one twelfth 
the rate that police are. Um, and, uh, and police themselves are rarely convicted uh, at about 120th the rate of the general population. Now, one thing I will say, if you move to constitutional carry, uh, I'm not gonna really be able to provide the same types of data. Uh, one of the benefits of having uh, a concealed carry permit holder is that you constantly run into claims by gun control advocates about, you know, blood in the streets and all the problems are going to happen. I mean, you saw that in Ohio. I, I testified in Ohio three times uh, before the state legislature, before uh, uh, concealed carry was adopted there. And, uh, you know, there's always these claims about what might possibly go wrong. And, uh, you know, you'd point to the experience in other states and, I remember the last time I testified, and I was kind of being pushed on that by one of the state legislators, and my response was, look, at, at that point, all the states that surrounded Ohio, every state that bordered Ohio had a concealed handgun permit law. Were people afraid to leave Ohio and drive in any direction uh, from there? You know, why is it that none of those states that are, were around Ohio had even had a legislative hearing, let alone a vote, on uh, on undoing their right to carry laws that were there. And, you know, people can say, well, people in Ohio are just different than people in other states. And that's the type of argument that I'd heard earlier. But, you know, are they different than the people in Pennsylvania and West Virginia and, and Kentucky and Indiana and Michigan? Uh, you know, it becomes less and less credible over time. Um, and that's the same type of thing you're going to see with the constitutional carry. I'll just mention that. And that is, you know, none of these states that have adopted constitutional carry uh, have even had a, a legislative hearing, let alone a vote, let alone even, even getting close to passage of a bill to undo the constitutional carry. You have 21 states. Uh, you would think that if this was something that was actually, uh, you know, people found created problems, uh, you know, you've had political parties change control of state legislatures. You've had political parties change control of governorships for these states over time. Uh, surely when you move from Republican control to Democrat control, if this was an issue, you would have seen some push uh, for change. And yet, you haven't. And I think that should tell people something about uh, about the actual dangers that people who are living with these laws um, actually perceive. So we've been talking about constitutional carry a little bit, and we are pushing a bill. Actually, there are two bills. One's gone through the House. We already have one in the Senate. So we could potentially end up with two in the Senate. But We've been listening to all this testimony for those who object to it, and it all really boils down to one thing. The claim is that if we get rid of the licensing system, and it's, it's interesting to listen to the gun control advocates talk about how well our licensing system works. They seem to be a big fan of it now, but they claim that if we get rid of the license or make the license optional so that you can carry without it, that it's going to translate into more criminals carrying firearms. So just to ask you straight up, based on data you've seen, does violent crime go up with constitutional carry or do you have more criminals 
carrying firearms just because you eliminate a license? Well, I mean, I assume you've read our research that the Crime Prevention Research Center has put out on this issue. And, uh, you know, the research that we've put out uh, shows that, uh, in fact, murder rates decline when states adopt uh, constitutional carry laws. Uh, So, you know, uh, in order to have a gun, you still have to, you know, if you're going to buy a gun at a dealer, you have to go through and get a criminal background check. Uh, It's still illegal in any case for criminals to go and carry a gun. It's illegal for them to own a gun. Uh, You know, the problem that you face is that when you have kind of restrictive rules, it's usually the most law-abiding citizens, not the criminals, who obey them. And uh, to the extent that that occurs, uh, you make it so that uh, victims are, you know, less able to go and defend themselves. You know, we've seen this in many places. Again, you know, I assume you've seen the research that we've done at the Crime Prevention Research Center. But one of the, uh, you know, things that I always point out when I go and debate gun control advocates is that, look, uh, if you believe guns on net are bad, as they claim, uh, then uh, it should be very easy to point to places which have banned either all guns or all handguns and seen drops in murder rates or at least that they stay the same. And yet they can't do that. Every single place in the world, not just in the United States, that's tried to ban either all handguns or all guns, has seen increases, often extremely large increases, in murder and homicide rates. And it's for something that I think gets to the core of of the question that you're asking, and that is, why does that happen? Why does it always go up? And the issue is, who obeys the law? You know, you may take some guns away from criminals, but if you primarily uh, stop law-abiding citizens from being able to go and protect themselves with guns, you're going to make it easier for criminals to go and commit crimes. You know, we saw that in, in Chicago, in Washington, D.C., uh, when they had their handgun bans in uh, 1977 or 1982. And... Uh, uh, you know, gun control advocates will come back and say, well, uh, you really can't expect this to work uh, unless you can go and ban guns every place because, you know, criminals could still get guns from the rest of Illinois or Indiana or Ohio, uh, or they can go and get them from Maryland or Virginia. Uh, there's a few responses to make to that. One is criminals could go and get guns from those other places to begin with. Uh, that explanation really doesn't explain why murder rates went up. It may explain why they didn't fall as much as gun control advocates were predicting. But, you know, of course, if they really thought it was going to be going up, it would have been nice if they had kind of leveled with people before uh, the laws were passed rather than coming up with this excuse afterwards. But I think even more importantly, uh, you can look around the world. And there are lots of places around the world that have banned either all handguns or all guns. Um, And every single time, murder rates uh, and homicide rates have gone up. Uh, You think out of randomness, uh, even in island nations, where you have kind of the perfect experiment, where they have well-defined, easily defendable borders that they can't go and blame other countries. Uh, You would think 
it would be easy to go and point to cases, uh, you know, just out of randomness. You think you get one place uh, where murder rates stayed the same or went down, and yet they can't do that. And I think, you know, that goes a lot to this basic question about you have to be careful when you pass laws that you're not primarily disarming law-abiding good citizens and preventing them from being able to go and protect themselves and their families. Um, you know, so you go and uh, uh, make it so somebody has to wait 45 days in Ohio before they can legally carry. So a woman who's being stalked or threatened, you know, she's very law-abiding. She says, boy, I really wish I could go and carry right now, but uh, I, I can't break the law. Uh, and so she doesn't carry and that makes her vulnerable. Or you have some poor person who can't afford the fees uh, to go through the process to go and get a concealed handgun permit and the training. And, uh, you know, they uh, and so they don't carry uh, because they want to obey the law. Um, you know, it's that puts them at a disadvantage relative to criminals who are willing to go and break the law. So, John, uh, if somebody wants to dig into these statistics a little bit more to see this report and other information, uh, where should they go? Well, they can go to our website at crimeresearch.org, crimeresearch.org, and uh, they can subscribe to our email blast that we send out once every two weeks. I assume you're on our email list? Absolutely. It's uh, it's one that I really look forward to. I get a lot of emails I don't look forward to, but yours is always a fantastic read. Well, thanks. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, uh, I wish we could have even more people subscribe to it, but uh, we try not to send it out too often to people. I think we're really the only group who accurately does this information on research on crime statistics and others involving guns. I mean, there's lots of groups on the left and huge amounts of money being pumped in from everybody from Bloomberg, who spends hundreds of millions of dollars on this stuff each year, and Soros and the Arnold Foundation and others. You know, Arnold Foundation, I guess, put in $50 million into pushing gun control research. Um, and, uh, you know, the federal government's putting in tens of millions of dollars into pushing gun control research. And you have a number of states like uh, California and uh, New Jersey and Washington State and Hawaii that are spending everything from like $2 million to $10 million each pushing gun control research. Uh, it's really a major industry now out there. And, uh, you know, we're really the only ones there that try to push back on that, you know, and we have a budget of only about 250000 a year. So, you know, it, uh, uh, but we do what we can to try to balance it off. John, thanks for spending some time with us today. All of us at Buckeye Firearms Association appreciate the work you do. Enjoy the holidays. And I hope to have you back again sometime. Sure. Anytime. Happy 400th uh, Thanksgiving. <laughs> Thanks, John. All right. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe. And please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter at BuckeyeFirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, go to joinbfa.org. 
Use the discount code PODCAST to get $10 off your membership. That's joinpfa.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio.